1960, around the time that tater tots came on the scene, Arthur Julius introduced his new invention at the National Restaurant Show. It was wet naps, and history was being made. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about jet skis, leaded gas, and flushable wipes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hi, it's Bernadette G, and I'm here to talk to you about how you can become a better storyteller. Storytelling is not an art reserved for the chosen few. It's a skill that you can learn, just like the students who've taken part in the Story Skills Workshop have done. Actually, I had a story to tell that was really important for me, but also was going to be very, very important for people in the future. It's been absolutely life-changing for me to see stories everywhere and to see my own stories. I was surprised that the learning was as much in the giving as in the receiving. We got to not only learn about storytelling, we actually got to practice using stories in our everyday life. If you're ready to become a better storyteller, I hope you'll join us. I hope you'll check it out. Visit akimbo.com slash go for all the upcoming workshops. Go make a ruckus. The wet nap was originally invented so that you could clean your hands after you ate ribs at a roadside joint, but it grew to many things. It includes baby wipes and, of course, flushable wipes. Last year, sewer systems, government agencies around the world spent more than a billion dollars cleaning up from the side effects of people using flushable wipes. They create fatbergs, giant glaciers stuck in the sewer system that cause enormous amounts of damage. And yet, people persist in using flushable wipes. Okay, let's go sideways for a minute. Clayton Jacobson, in the 1960s, was a motorcycle driver. He loved fast bikes. He liked hanging out on the beach with his friends. And he wanted to find a way to combine the beach with motorcycling. Putting together a two-stroke engine and some ingenuity, he invented what ended up becoming the jet ski. Before that, he licensed his patents to Bombardier, The people who make snowmobiles, they figured it's a snowmobile for the water. We'll give it a try. But then Yamaha came along, built the jet ski, and for more than a dozen years, they dominated the market. What about jet skis? Well, a jet ski gets about three miles per gallon in fuel efficiency and is as loud as a 737 jet. I live about a mile from the beautiful Hudson River, and on a quiet summer evening, it's not hard at all, a mile away, to hear people racing their jet skis, getting three miles per gallon, racing through the Hudson River, causing who knows what damage to the ecosystem. Okay, continuing. We've got people on jet skis. We've got people with flushable wipes. What about Thomas Midgley Jr.? I've mentioned him before. He invented two things that changed the world. He invented leaded gas, which caused countless 
birth defects and illnesses around the world. And he also invented freon gas, which powered air conditioners and ripped a giant hole in the ozone layer. So what do all of these things have in common? What they have in common is the problem with unchecked, unregulated, profit-seeking capitalism. That because a company can make something that is legal and profitable, sometimes they do. And because individuals sometimes want to do something that is in their short-term interest, regardless of whether it helps or hurts their neighbors, sometimes they do. If it's not against the law, the feeling is it's okay to do it. And if you live on a quiet lake and somebody starts zooming around on a jet ski, well, at some point you say, there goes the quiet, I might as well get one too. And so the system begins to corrode. In the case of flushable wipes, literally corrodes. That what happens is every single individual has a selfish short-term incentive to go get these fairly inexpensive products that make their personal life just a little bit easier. They don't have to suffer all of the costs of their habit because it is shared by everyone in the population. And once everyone in the population looks around and says, wait a minute, if I'm already paying to get these fatbergs removed from our sewers, I might as well join in as well. And so in this short rant, what I'm trying to highlight is that while capitalists doing what they think is their part to profit maximize, while consumers thinking they are doing their part by buying what is in their interest in that moment, there is a third leg to the stool. We cannot, and it has been demonstrated again and again, get by with just two parts. We can't build a sustainable, resilient culture in which individuals do what they want for short-term benefit and which companies sell what they want for short-term profit. The third leg is collective action. That when we as a group decide we're going to ban Freon gas, we all suffer the short-term consequences of looking for an alternative that maybe isn't as efficient, maybe isn't as inexpensive. But what we end up with for the long term as a culture is an ozone layer that doesn't have a hole ripped in it. When we banned leaded gas, people said, we will never recover. Cars will knock and not drive as well. Here engineers are studying exhaust condensates that indicate the effects of tetraethyl lead. Engineers study these things in the laboratory. They study them out of the road, too, in passenger cars, in trucks, through tests under various kinds of rigid control situations. The instruments in this test car indicate and graphically record information on such factors as horsepower, fuel consumption, speed, spark setting. That's the way mechanical engineers working with chemists arrive at conclusions which result in better and better engine performances. Well, it didn't take that long, and every consumer paid a small price, but in the long run, we all saved because illness went down. And so, for example, when we think about the jet ski, the question is, should a few people be able to exercise their freedom to drive a personal 
Boeing 737 airliner around on a lake or a river, causing hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people to hear what they're doing. Should they be allowed to have a two-stroke motor that dumps effluent straight into the river with the fish that we hope will thrive there? Well, it's not against the law, so should they? Should we rely on consumers to just do what's right for everyone? And companies, when companies decide to market something, like the significant flush wipe industry, should that industry get together and fight government regulation? They are profiting from the fact that municipalities have to pay money, our money, tax money, to fix the sewers, to clean things up. Is that asymmetric relationship appropriate? Or is it okay for collective action, all of us, to decide that the commons belong to all of us and to regulate who can use them in which way? And the thing about this conversation, the thing that makes it so interesting, is that both extremes don't work. We cannot regulate every single choice, every purchase, every behavior. Can't be done. People have tried. It doesn't work. But at the other end of the extreme, there is no thriving culture on the planet that doesn't already regulate behaviors of people that affect other people. Every successful organized culture does this. So it's not, are you on this extreme or that extreme? It's where do we set the dial? How do we decide as a culture which behaviors, which contributions, which takings are so asymmetrical and noxious that we have to make a rule about them? And if we're going to make a rule about them collectively, how much of a voice should the manufacturers have in helping us make that rule? that the cost of banning flushable wipes, for example, will largely fall on the dozen manufacturers who make millions and millions of dollars a year selling them to people. The individuals who might have to pay an extra dollar or two or 10 or 20 a year to find a substitute, they are actually coming out ahead because their taxes are going to go down at least as much as their expenditures on something to replace flushable wipes will go up. But the manufacturers, they have a really significant incentive. And as we've created cultures around the world where manufacturers, industrialists with incentives are able to use money and lobbying to change the government's behavior, we have an unfair fight. And so we end up deregulating things that probably should be regulated. I, for one, am glad we don't have leaded gas. I'm glad that Freon gas has been replaced. I'm glad that we've got at least a little bit more time to straighten up our climate mess. But when I sit on my back porch and I hear the jet skis roaring a mile away that sound like a 737, or when I think about the hardworking people in the sewer who have to clean up those fatbergs because individuals left to their own devices often seek to maximize their own short-term gains, then I wonder if we're doing a good enough job of making decisions about what all of us are going to do on behalf of all of us. So that's a rant. I don't have a specific answer, but I thought I'd ask the question. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some questions from previous episodes. But first, 
Here's a message from our sponsor. When is it time to level up? When is it time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Reading Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got questions about this or any previous episode, please visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. While you're there, you can check out the show notes. Some weeks are deeper than others. Couple questions this week. Here we go. Hi, Seth. It's John. In the past, I've submitted questions here referring to myself as John from Boston, but I'm actually from Arlington, Massachusetts, a town right outside of Boston. Moving forward, would it make more sense from a brand standpoint to refer to myself as John from Arlington because it's more specific or as John from Boston since more folks nationally and globally have heard of Boston? I'm thinking about this in terms of your great saying that you can either fit in or stand out, but not both. And I'm also thinking about it in terms of my broader professional pursuits. For example, I consider myself both a policy analyst and a systems thinker. And I'm wondering if I should pitch myself more as a policy analyst, which many folks have heard of, or as a systems thinker, which is a bit more niche. Thanks so much for everything you do. Thanks for this, John. I'm from Arlington, too. Well, not born and raised there, but I lived there for years and years. I remember the sandwich shop in the middle of town. I used to live right next to the volunteer fire department, which was a problem because they tested their horn every Saturday at 6 a.m. But that's neither here nor there. I think the key, the answer to both of the points you raise, is this. Differentiation is selfish. Going out of our way to simply be different doesn't solve anybody's problems. What we have instead is the opportunity to be generous and useful by talking about what we do, where we're from, how we do it, in a way that helps the other person. And so one of the things that we get when we tell somebody where we're from is a chance for shared experience. You're from Arlington. I'm from Arlington. Do you know Bob? Have you ever eaten at Luigi's? You get the idea. That's why we do it. It's a way of indicating something that we might have in common or something that we might not have in common with the person that we are talking with. Being distinctive in service of something, in service of somebody else's problems, Nothing wrong with that. That's really helpful. But being distinctive simply to be noisy doesn't really help. And that gets to the thing you want to introduce yourself as. If the person you're talking to doesn't know what a systems thinker is, doesn't care what a systems thinker is, and doesn't need a systems thinker, saying you're a systems thinker is basically saying, you don't want to talk about what I do. 
On the other hand, if you can introduce somebody to what you do in a way that helps them understand how you could be of use to them or to someone else, well, then you've got a shot at helping them, at serving them. I was having dinner with a friend last night, and I said, well, what you really do for a living is you're a weaver. And they looked at me a little side-eyed, and I said, yeah, you're a weaver. You weave together people and ideas and opportunities. And many of the folks you meet need somebody who's a weaver. If you tell them that you're a systems thinker and strategy consultant, that might not help because they might not have woken up this morning thinking that that's what they need. But if you can honestly share with them insights and possibilities about how they can move forward and get to where they're going, then you have a shot at actually being of service. Hey, Seth. This is Cal from Chicago. My question is about the COVID vaccine, probability, and risk. Going in, my read based on your tone whenever the vaccine has come up during recent episodes is that you effectively think everyone who has access to the vaccine should sign up to receive it as soon as possible. I'm not anti-vaccine. I'm no expert, but having done some digging into the data, my sense is that it's overall safe, at least in terms of the short term. That leads us directly to the limitation. We don't have any way of knowing the long-term effects. Even here, my best guess is that there's nothing to worry about for most people. Even so, I have a hard time coming to grips with the idea that every single person should pursue vaccination right now. We have no way of knowing the long-term effects. There's at least some chance that two or three, let alone 10 years from now, will find out that the vaccine has some significant long-term impact that in hindsight, we wish we'd have known about when weighing the risks going in. Every person approaches the decision of whether or not to get vaccinated with a unique background, life station, and risk tolerance. Given the long-term unknowns, don't you think there is some place for a nuanced discussion around accepting and respecting some individual's choice to hold off, at least for a little while? Many of us who agree that wearing a helmet or a seatbelt is common sense also avoid buying cars in their first model year, after all. Right now, it's hard to find a place where it even feels safe to have this conversation, which is scary in its own right. Would greatly appreciate if you were willing to bring it to the fore. Thanks for all you do. Thank you for sharing this. It was kind and generous of you to bring this up. And I am loath to have political conversations here on this podcast because politics, as currently defined, is about arguing with people without listening to them. And we're not going to go there, and that's not what we do. But it is an opportunity to talk about a whole bunch of things that have nothing to do with that. The first one is saying what we mean and meaning what we say. And in our 200 dives into culture, we're usually talking about a disconnect between what we think we're hearing and what we're actually hearing, about what we think we're saying and what we're actually saying, understanding what we mean and what we want. And so there are many people who are vaccine hesitant, who are legitimately hesitant. They're hesitant for a couple reasons. One is because they're sort of afraid. Afraid of change, afraid of the unknown, afraid of getting caught in a political conversation, and it goes on and on. There's a magical book called On Immunity by a woman named Eula Biss, and it's so beautifully written, and it is a history, a multi-hundred-year history of how culture has danced around the issues, the issues of health and safety and class and risk associated with vaccines. 
And once we see it as a historical, cultural construct, it is much easier to see past the issues in any given moment. Because what we're not saying when we talk about this issue, when we pretend we're talking about science, what we're not saying is, I'm afraid. Because we're all afraid. And fear, fear can cause people to do surprising things. And fear can freeze us in place. And so if we begin by saying, I'm afraid, can you teach me what I need to know so that I won't be afraid? We are in much better shape as a community than if we resort to either pretending to talk about science and statistics or resorting to talking about tribal politics, because neither of those help if we can't begin by acknowledging that we aren't sure, because not being sure is part of the human condition. Now, there are several things, and I've talked about this on the podcast, that make conversations about public health fundamentally different than conversations about personal behavior. Public health is how fast can you drive in a school zone? Personal behavior is should you wear a helmet when you're riding a bike? They're fundamentally different kinds of conversations, and we should be really clear about which one we're having. The second thing that gets in the way is this issue of time. As you have brought up really clearly and appropriately, nobody knows what's going to happen 10 or 15 or 20 years after people get a vaccine, except people have been getting vaccines for a really long time. And vaccines are some of the most studied medical interventions in the history of humanity. And what we know from those studies and from that history going back to before polio is that this is not a candidate for surprising long-term health problems. The third thing, I think I'm up to the third thing. The third thing is we have a disconnect between when there is a problem and who is affected by that problem, back to the school zone situation, that it is entirely possible that someone who doesn't get vaccinated is going to make someone else sick. And so that person who didn't get vaccinated doesn't even know that that happened, which is part of the reason why it's not appropriate to have a conversation about most people waiting. Because anyone who can get the vaccine has the ability to take themselves out of the pool of people who spread the disease. And that is a significant public health commitment. That is part of what it is to be in culture. Now, you correctly point out that there are always trade-offs and there are always unknowns. Here is the urgent question. How many people have died already? It's in the millions. That there are days in India where more than a thousand people are dying. And I hope that we could visualize that if when somebody made a decision about having or not having the vaccine, that person standing next to them would either die or not die instantly and violently, getting the vaccine would be a really easy decision. If someone opens a window on a jet and the air is all racing out, it's really easy to make the decision to close the window, even if that person is objecting about their personal freedom to open the window. Because they are right in front of us, 
is a matter of life and death. And so what we are seeing right now is a really easy calculus. And the calculus is this. We know the efficacy of the miracle of the vaccines that are available right now. The efficacy is as high as most vaccines that have ever been tested. We also know the danger that non-vaccinated populations face. It is really significant. It's not about whether or not you're going to get a little bit of a rash on your skin or whether or not your hair is going to fall out. This is a matter of, are you going to be dead or not? And the odds of it hurting or killing somebody who's over 60 are dramatically bigger than they are for someone who's 20. And those numbers may change over time. But what we've got here is a classic public health problem. And what makes something a public health problem is, no, we cannot know. But yes, we have an obligation. There are a few people who, for pre-existing medical reasons, cannot contribute to the culture. And we have enough room for those people to be, quote, free riders, unquote. Because when the rest of us show up and do what we can for all of us, we come out ahead. But it begins with fear. And shaming people isn't a good way to get rid of fear. But on the other hand, people like us do things like this. The more we can normalize behavior, the more we can standardize around what it is to be a member of community, the more likely it is that community will form. Just as we don't have people recklessly speeding in school zones, just as we don't have people strip mining in national parks, we have come up with rules that enable us to live in community. And compared to most of the rules, this one is particularly cut and dry and particularly easy to measure. That doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean that there is no fear. I get that. And I hope that you will read Biss's book because it may very well have the tone and the thoroughness that I can't possibly deliver in this podcast. But I truly appreciate you caring about this. And thank you for listening. We'll see you all next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA.
more than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.